is STEM Fatale, your Women in Science History podcast. Woo 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 woo. Back in 2019, Back the year of our Lord. <laughs> nope. No. The year we're both turning 30. That is true. That's and frightening. Probably graduating. That is also true. What a year it will be. <sighs> There's so many things to look forward to in the future. Well, uh, I am Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm Emma Dilemma. And oh. we're your uh, Steminists. For the hour. <laughs> <laughs> For this cozy hour mm. in our sheet fort yeah. in Emlyn's house. <laughs> we haven't been able to find any place to record right now, so we're in my room. Yeah. In a, uh, I've made a, a little blanket fort, and it's very cozy. It's and so I do cozy. feel quite youthful. <laughs> Before I turn 30, <laughs> gotta make some more blanket forts. Yeah, we really should. Yeah. So, this woman this week. Yeah, this week's this woman. This week's woman. I... <laughs> Are you okay? I'm okay. It just was a little stressful. <laughs> okay. Um, I think you'll be able to... TMI about her? <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, there is... There's a lot of information about yeah. her. I wouldn't say it's TMI. Okay. But it's just... I wanted to do her justice. Gotcha. I think you'll know this woman. Oh. Is it Marie Curie or something? It is not Marie okay. Curie. But, so there's been another scientist in the news this week. Oh. Who continues to publicly be racist. Oh, James Watson uh-huh. and Rosalind Franklin. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, we're doing Rosalind Franklin this oh, week. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I, I kept delaying this episode because I was like, I need more time. Yeah. I need more time. And then I just realized there would never be enough time. So. Right. I mean, wow, this is going to be good. <sighs> is It'll it? be interesting. I mean, yeah. Remember when she was, I didn't know what she did when yeah. we started this podcast? <laughs> well, that's no longer true. So did you read... Um, James Watson's, like, first book. The, uh, The Double Helix? Yeah. No. Where he, like, dish, like, has a bunch of gossip and mm-hmm. calls her all these really sexist things. Yeah, <laughs> there's, I talk a little bit about this, but okay. uh, I did not read that book, but I, other people yeah, refer okay. to the book. Yeah, and so, so there's some pretty much gotten out of it, yeah. I mean, they, there may be more stuff I could get out of it, but I don't really want to read anything He's from Watson. Yeah. <laughs> I would rather put my energy towards positive, yeah, non-racist cool, nice. people. Yeah, Good. like Rosalind Franklin. Yay! Yay! Oh, I'm excited. I tried to also not keep, make it too long because it could just go on forever. Yeah. I started to read this really good book that I only got about halfway through. And I was yeah. also like trying to finish reading it. I was like, this is never going to happen <laughs> before we have to record. Yeah. But it's a really good book. It's Rosalind Franklin, Dark Lady of DNA. Ooh. By Brenda Maddox. I think but I've heard of it. Yeah, I think it's one of the more famous of her biography. Yeah. But it's really good. So if you like this episode, go read more. <sighs> you got this. <laughs> so uh, Rosalind Elsie Franklin Aww. was born on July twenty fifth, 
1920, to a prominent Jewish-British family in Notting Hill, London. I got this far in my research, and then I had to watch Notting Hill. <laughs> so there was, like, a big divergence. Do you think Julia Roberts ever met Rosalind Franklin? Hmm. Did those uh, universes ever overlap? Um, I would say probably not. Okay. But you never know. You never know. She could, because she was a famous movie star. I mean, she is a famous movie star, but in the movie she plays a famous movie star. She could play Rosalind Franklin <laughs> in a movie that was in that universe. Oh, yeah. See what I'm saying? Let's make that happen. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> is there going to be Notting Hill 2? Well, yes. Okay. I'm going to say yes. Cool, cool. Okay. This is derailed. So, Rosalind's father was Ellis Arthur Franklin, and her mother was Muriel Francis Wally. And Ellis was a merchant banker. I say baker in here. But <laughs> merchant baker. <laughs> she made like little money cookies. Yeah. Like, or she sold her baked goods. A merchant banker. Okay. Uh, so yeah. So her father was a merchant banker who also had aspired to be a scientist, but had instead gone into the military during World War One, And oh, then wow. kind of by the time he got out, that dream kind of wasn't a possibility. Mm-hmm. But after World War One, he continued to, like, he taught classes for the general public and stuff like that. So he used his science knowledge. Nice. And the Franklin extended family were pillars of the Jewish community in uh, London at the time. Wow. And they really emphasized philanthropy and community service. And they were That's kind of a big cool. deal. Yeah. I'm going to skip a lot of her childhood. It's interesting, but we don't have time. Yeah. We can't. Turns out Rosalind Franklin isn't just involved in DNA, so we have other things to talk about. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. I know. So, okay. So, in 1932, at the age of 11, Rosalind Franklin began school at St. Paul's Girls' School, and at age 16, while she was there, and she focused on chemistry, physics, and mathematics. So, already at that stage at 16, she was very, very science-focused. And although St. Paul's was progressive, apparently science was taught to girls in a different way then the boys' school taught science. So um, at St. Paul's, it called for neatness and repetition, whereas at the boys' school, it was more about the excitement and daring of trying new things. Wow, that's really weird. Yeah. So she soon became impatient with St. Paul's and left a year early to start university. And there's a lot of people that were upset about that for various reasons, but... Why? Like, she was just a good student or didn't think she was ready or something? I think some people didn't think she was ready. I think St. Paul's, if you stayed longer, you were more likely to get a scholarship because you'd be further along and that looks better for them. I see. Yada, yada, yada. Anyway, so then Franklin went to Newnham College at Cambridge University Hmm. in 1938. And so those were one of the colleges that accepted women. And there she studied chemistry. And during her time at Cambridge, so this is 1938 and 1939, like January 1939 is when World War II starts. And so at this time, her parents threw themselves into work to support refugees from mainland Europe. Oh, my gosh. And they, like, took on two refugee children and they kind of assimilated into their family. Yeah. And in shorter biographies during this time, people argue that Rosalind's father, Ellis, did not want her to go to college. And refused to pay for it. Whoa. And so they kind of claim that this was because she was a woman and he, like, didn't want her to go to college. But if you read longer biographies, what it really was, was this was during World War II and they were 
really big on public service, and he thought she should go support the war and then I go to see. college later. Yeah. So he didn't want to pay for it because he thought she should be promoting the war, like yeah, helping, be helping the war effort and stuff. Exactly. And, yeah. But then he did he did pay for it, but it wasn't because she was a woman. It was because That's he good. thought everybody should be I mean, supporting the war. Reasonable yeah. things to think at that time. Yeah, especially yeah. if you're a big Jewish community in that yeah, area. Right. So she continued to study at Cambridge during the war, despite the nightly air raid alerts Ugh. and trenches being dug like all around the college. So what? they would have to. I guess there'd be nightly air raid alerts, and they would all have to leave their dorms and then go hide in the That's trenches. so scary. I can't imagine. <laughs> like, how can you get anything done? I don't know. When you're sleeping in the trenches. In her last year at Cambridge, she also met this French refugee, Adrian Weil. I don't know how you pronounce that, Weil. Who was a former student of Marie Curie's. Whoa. Uh, and this woman had a huge influence on her life and career and helped her improve her friends. Wow. French and... Helped her kind of in the future go to France. And so she had a big impact. And she really looked up towards this woman. Mentors are so important. They're so important. Yeah. And then in 1941, she was awarded second class honors, which sounds not good, but I think it's like top of the line, just mm-hmm. not first class. Uh, honors on her final exams. And although at the time, women were not allowed to get BA or MA degrees, right? So you take all these classes and you earn a BA, but you're not given a BA. Right. Okay. That's so stupid. (laughs) They were given what were called titular BAs. All the women got tit BAs, and they made jokes about that in the book. But but later, retroactively, so they have all the qualifications of a BA, and a lot of that carries the same weight, so they can still get jobs that require a BA, but they don't get the cert, like... There's just some stupid rule at the university and no one's willing to change it. They yeah. just go, this is the rule. Yeah. Just, like, just change the rule. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you can't <laughs> say you have a... It's... it's Yeah. But yeah. so retroactively in 1947, they started giving people BAs so that she finally got... She actually got yeah. her, you know, BA. Everything happens her to BSBA. her retroactively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So... Then her, the Newnham College, where she went to undergrad, awarded Franklin a research fellowship, which allowed her to join the physical chemistry lab at the University of Cambridge to work under Ronald Norrish, oh. uh, who later won a Nobel Prize in chemistry. I've it's, never heard of it. I know. It. It's, it's so actually, bad. I mean, we'll get to this kind of throughout, but it's amazing how many Nobel Prize winners she was surrounded by. Or people who would go on to win Nobel Prizes. Okay, this is where I really do think we've met a, or we've talked about a few women who kind of like won Nobel Prizes and everyone they knew won Nobel Prizes. Like Rita Mm -hmm. Levy Montalcini, I think, was the same way. Yeah. And I'm like, was the scientific community just way smaller then? So you're more likely to like win or have, I don't know. Like, it was smaller somewhat, but... I think partially it was smaller, and then partially... I think there was a period of time where very rapidly we were making huge strides. And so... True. A lot of people, their contributions were huge, but everybody was making huge contributions. Yeah. Because the field was just... That's true. 
like physics before World War II yeah. was making huge strides. And then biology after World War II right. with DNA yeah. and all of mm-hmm. that and genetics. True. So I think it's now we now it's harder. Yeah. There's more of us and there's less I think there's less giant leaps. Yeah. It's like the MCMC. The like Markov chain. Markov chain, what Monte Carlo Monte Carlo Markov yeah. chain. We're like when you're really far away from right. the o- optimum, you, make you can make steps. really steps towards it. But then once you get closer, you, you can only make Oh, I wonder how close we are. <sighs> I don't know. Okay, anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so yeah, so she went to work for Ronald Norrish, who later won this Nobel Prize yeah. in chemistry. Uh, she did not have a lot of success in this lab, though, because Norrish at the time was, according to his biographer, obstinate and almost perverse in his argument, overbearing and sensitive to criticism. <laughs> Additionally, he had... Sounds really unemotional <laughs> and logical scientist. He also had succumbed to heavy drinking. Oh, boy. So it wasn't a great place to work. And she wanted to work where she could actually um, work on science towards that influenced the war efforts. Yeah. But because he was a heavy drinker, he was a liability. And so no, none of his lab was allowed to work on any sensitive war Gosh. Which I think also made him depressed, and then he also was drinking more, and his family had left, and it was a oh, whole thing. Oh, wow. I don't think it was a good time <laughs> in his lab. Uh, that's like, the guy who invented PCR was also like a crazy, Carrie Mullis. Mm-hmm. Have you ever read his Nobel Prize speech? No. His whole Nobel Prize acceptance speech is about how the woman he loved um, left him because he was so obsessed with creating this PCR. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he's like, I forget the exact quote, but he's like, not even the dawn of the age of PCR could, like, replace Jennifer or something crazy like that. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying, like, Nobel Prize winners are sometimes quirky. Yes, sometimes. (laughs) A laugh and a riot. So Franklin wrote that Norrish, during her time working for him, made her despise him completely. Oh, (laughs) that's not great. Yeah, I would too. Uh, So she resigned from Norrish's lab and went on to work as an assistant research officer at the British Coal Utilization Research Association. Whoa. In 1942. There she studied a wartime problem, the nature of coal and how to use it more effectively. Wow. Uh, more precisely, she studied the porosity of coal and helped classify coal and predict its performance for fuel purposes and for gas masks yeah. during World War II. So these were now she was actually like helping the war effort. Yeah, I didn't realize that coal was in gas masks. I didn't know that it's, either. I guess char charcoal or graphite. Yeah, because it like traps. Oh right, like air. And it's like porous, probably. but it, yeah. Yeah. That's like, you know, people drink those charcoal capsules mm-hmm. now to, you know, remove toxins yeah. from their system, whatever yeah. that means. But they do absorb, like, things somehow. I've been going to yoga every day. And, and they the, always talk about, about your toxins. And I'm just like, it's, <laughs> just stick to things that are true. There's so many good <laughs> benefits of yoga. You don't have to pretend that we're, like, detoxifying I or, like, know. squeezing our... <laughs> Like, rinsing out our yeah. organs. It's not what we're doing. Uh, I like that movement. You made, like, <laughs> wringing them out. <laughs> okay. Uh, 
so this work, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this work that she did formed the basis of her PhD thesis. So her PhD oh, thesis was entitled The Physical Chemistry of Solid Organic Colloids with Specific Reference to Coal. Cool. Um, and she got this from the University of Cambridge in 1945, but it was all based on this coal work. She published five papers from this work. Before she was 26. Dang. And this work's still quoted today in this field, and it helped launch the field of high-strength carbon fibers. Whoa. Um, yeah. So there's That's also, like, cool. a lot of companies <laughs> that were interested in her work at yeah, that time. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So she was, That's like, a leading coal major. researcher. <laughs> Nobody talks about that. Yeah. Stupid DNA. Yeah. Okay. Anyways. Stupid DNA. <laughs> Stupid the DNA. discovery of DNA. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> So after World War II ended, she re- and she received her PhD. Adrian Well, that that French yeah. refugee, um, helped put Franklin in contact with researchers in France, leading her to work with uh, Jacques Mering uh-huh. uh, in Paris. And Mering was a X-ray crystallographer who ah. applied these techniques to study amorphous substances, uh, which presented new challenges to interpreting results because cool. they're not as clear cut. And so Franklin then went there and applied these techniques to coal. She just loves that coal. Uh, understanding the changes in the arrangement of atoms as coal is converted into graphite. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. And Paris was a great time for Franklin. The war was over. She was living on her own for the first time. She was enjoying French food, yeah. practicing her French, going dancing. Wine, cheese, wine, bread. Cheese. <laughs> she, uh, when I was reading her... Biography. There's so many things she talks about that she's just like, I hate the Brits. The Brits suck. <laughs> Compared so to the French. Like she was hot pie. She's definitely a Francophile. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And she really enjoyed That's her, her culture, the culture there yeah. and also her lab. The lab would go out to lunch every day Aww. and like sit on the Seine. That sounds um, so nice. And they could like look out and see Marie Curie's lab. What? And they would just like go Be dancing like- and then have coffee. And it seemed like a very nice, like, Communal That's group. That's so cool. Um, it's also suggested that Franklin may have been in love <gasps> with Maring at this time. With who? Jack Maring, oh, whose oh, wor- oh, oh, oh. lab yeah. she was working in. Oh, um, that's And that he salacious. may have also been interested in her. Yikes. Um, however, uh, he already had a wife and a mistress. Oh, so, so nothing, <laughs> nothing really happened. You can't from that. have two mistresses. Yeah, you can't. It's yeah, just too complicated. And I think one of them was also in the lab. Oh no! So it it's was not okay. It was not a great situation. So nothing ever materialized from that. Yeah, but, probably for the best. Yeah, you know. Yeah, awkward. I know. So wow. a wife and a mistress. Yeah, it's the it's French people. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Uh, with <laughs> So with pressure from her family to return and a desire to get a scientific career in England, she finally returned after a couple of years oh. from Paris. She's so back she in England. back to England. She's back in England. Wonder- She's sad. All of London's, like, destroyed because of World War II. So she went from Wasn't Paris, Paris, which is all... pretty destroyed? I think Paris was... No, because they surrendered. Oh. So, so France... Parts of right? France were pretty... I think- Paris was intact. I think okay. most of London was destroyed. Wow. So she went back to London right. and it's just like they like parked cars in bomb shelter cuz her her family really wanted her to go oh, back. Right. Okay. Nothing I, I think nothing was going to happen with 
Jack. Jack. Nothing was going to happen with <laughs> or Jack. Or is it Jacques? Jacques. I think it's probably Jacques. <laughs> and she wanted to get a, I think she wanted a professor job in mm-hmm. England. So she came back, but she was a little sad. And also when she was in France, she was very much in the French culture and it, it was yeah. much more equitable in France. So she was oh, in charge, okay. yeah. like had a pretty high position in the lab. Yeah. Um, and independence and she was respected and she could wear her like fun outfits she was she was very much into fashion knowing where this is going i'm just like <sighs> man why did you leave i know france but and then yeah. she went to london and it's all like dead and it's yeah. much more of a, a patriarchy yeah, in london like in like the working zone but in 1950 franklin was given a three-year fellowship to work at king's college in london okay before starting work <laughs> at the medical research council's biophysics unit to just call, we're just going to call it King's because yeah, that's where fine. she worked. Maurice Wilkins and Raymond Gosling, who was a PhD student, had obtained an outstanding diffraction picture of DNA using right. crude equipment. And originally, uh, John Randall, who was the director of the King's lab, had appointed Franklin to work on X-ray diffraction of proteins and lipids. So mm-hmm. that's what she was going to come in and work on. But he redirected her to work on DNA fibers because of this picture that Wilkins and Gosling had made. Oh. Because it was kind of crude because they weren't experts in uh, X-ray crystallography. However, Randall, who's in charge of the lab, had not informed Wilkins and Gosling that he had asked Franklin to take over this DNA diffraction work. Oh, so that's why they were mad at her. And and she was supposed to take over the guidance of gosling's thesis because franklin was the only experienced experimental diffraction researcher there at the time wilkins was on vacation when franklin arrived and so when he returned there was instant friction between them franklin thought that she was in charge of the project because she had been directed to be in charge of the project but Wilkins thought that she was there to assist him Uh-oh. because Randall had not told him that he was no longer in charge of the project. Right. So Randall's poor communication about Franklin's role contributed immensely to the future friction between Franklin's yeah, and Wilkins. Right. So at this time, it was not completely accepted that DNA was the heritable material. Um, the other option was protein. Right. Because they knew chromosomes carried the heritable no material and so the two things that were in chromosomes were proteins mm-hmm. or dna right so like it's one of these two but the king's lab had kind of honed in on dna um, based on some other work that suggested it might be the heritable element yeah. what was also known was that dna invariably contained the same number of adenine and thymine and the same number of cytosine and guanine so they always saw those yeah. ratios the same and so, so that's just kind of background of, like, what they knew right. at this time. And so Franklin then worked with Gosling, that PhD student, and started to apply her expertise to refining, adjusting, and focusing a new X-ray tube and micro camera, and to skillfully manipulate the hydration of these DNA specimens. Wow. And so during this time, Gosling and Franklin discovered two forms of DNA. It was long and thin when wet. And then short and fat when dried. Uh, I don't know why that sounds so gross. <laughs> I know. And so they called those B and A forms. Yeah. Um, and at this, and also at this time, Wilkins and Franklin's personality conflicts were getting fairly intense. 
Wilkins thought that Franklin exhibited an air of cool superiority over him. But Yikes. if you read some of her letters, it do- is clear that she did think she was better than him. Yeah. She called him second rate or like a second <laughs> class. Oh my gosh. Uh, and she appeared to be frustrated that she had to collaborate with Wilkins when she yeah. didn't think she was getting out anything from him and she didn't think he was as good a scientist as her. So he was sensing some things that she was. Yeah. But she was also supposed to be in charge and he didn't realize that. Yeah. It sounds kind of mutual. Like they just didn't like each other. Yeah. Yeah. Because of their conflicts, they split up the work on DNA Mm -hmm. with Wilkins focusing on this B form, which is the long and thin. (laughs) And Franklin worked on the A form, which is short and fat. (laughs) And it was during this time that Gosling, the the PhD student, under the direction of Franklin, took the landmark uh, Photo 51. Yeah. Have you seen that? It's like, it's the one that just looks like an X, essentially. But that's which John Desmond Bernal, who's I think another physicist, called amongst the most beautiful x-ray photographs of any substance ever taken. I know. It looks like... Almost nothing. (laughs) Yeah, like, I can't really tell what's going on. It's like, it's an X. Yeah. Every time, so I always try to, we always, like, show it to students Mm -hmm. in intro bio, and they're like, oh, is that, like, the two parts of the helix? And it's like, no, I don't know how to read this. This doesn't (laughs) tell me anything. I know. Like, you really have to know how to Mm -hmm. read the x-ray crystallography graphs to get anything from it. The picture is based on what has bounced back from the molecule, so. yeah. You have to, like, you can't look at it and say much. You have to do a bunch of calculations. Um, she figured out it's a spiral. From this, (laughs) somehow. Yeah. At the end of 1951, it was well established within King's College, where they all worked, that the B form of DNA was a helix. Right. However. Oh, it was? I didn't know it was, like, well established. Wait, from that picture? Partially from that picture okay. and from some other work they were doing. Oh, oh, okay. It wasn't published, but they knew they I had see. Right, right. that it was a helix. Uh, however, in May 1952, based on some other images taken by Franklin, she believed that the A-form, so the, the thin and long uh-huh. one, was not a helix. So there oh. were some things that weren't matching up. So Weird. she wasn't okay. convinced that... It was necessarily a helix. Yeah. And the A form. But later calculations by Franklin and Gosling provided significant insight into the structure of DNA. And by January 1953, with this new data in hand, Franklin concluded that both A and B were, in fact, helixes. Yeah. And they, that they had two helixes, so that they were a double helix. Right. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, while... They're figuring out whether or not it's a helix and doing all of this X-ray crystallography stuff. There's an intense race to figure out the structure of DNA. Yeah. So mm-hmm. King's, where they worked at, then Cambridge, where Watson and Crick mm-hmm. were, and then Linus Pauling. And they're all yeah. trying to figure it out first. Now we're going to get into like some very nitty-gritty time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was pretty... It was a pretty competitive Yeah, it was very competitive. A lot of things happened mm-hmm. really fast. So... Uh, January 30th, 1953, Watson came to King's College carrying a preprint of Linus Pauling's manuscript, which incorrectly had proposed the structure of DNA. Yeah. 
And so not being able to find Wilkins, uh, Watson went to Franklin's lab to urge her to collaborate with them before Linus Pauling realized that he was wrong and fixed it and figured out the structure of DNA. So apparently Watson and Franklin then got into a bit of a heated argument where Franklin became angry that Watson had suggested she didn't know how to interpret her data. So I guess he was trying to interpret her data for her. Mansplain her own data. Mansplain her own data. And she was like, hey, I got it. (laughs) Back off. And so then Watson left and found Wilkin, Wilkins, and Wilkins then showed Watson Franklin's DNA x-ray image, image 51, I think, but it might have been a different one. I'm not positive. Without her knowledge or consent. Yeah. And a lot of this data then is what leads them to figure out the structure of DNA. Right. So by February, James Watson and Francis Crick had started to build a model of the B form of DNA. Much of their data came directly from research done by Wilkins and Franklin. And Franklin finished her own work in February and prepared to transfer to Birkbeck College. She did not like... Yeah, King's. King's. Apparently, weren't allowed. Women weren't allowed to eat lunch in the dining hall. That's so stupid. Clearly, a lot of the people, like Wilkins, who she was working with, she didn't get along with at yeah. all. So she had planned to transfer to Birkbeck College, but Randall, who's in charge of the King's Lab, had insisted that all of her DNA work must stay at King's, what? and that once she leaves, she cannot work on DNA. That's so crazy. So she had was finishing up what she had and yeah. then was going to leave. And so she had pretty much finished up all of her research by that time. And in the middle of February, uh, Crick's thesis advisor gave Crick a copy of a report written by the committee at King's wow. containing many of Franklin's calculations on the structure of DNA. Yeah. So that was also something that didn't necessarily say do not share or private, but it wasn't something published yet. Yeah. Uh, Franklin wrote a series of three manuscripts on her findings about DNA from this time. And two of these manuscripts on the A form of DNA reached the journal Acta Crystallographica <laughs> uh, one day before Crick and Watson had finished their model oh. on the B form. She sent yeah. them in and they got there one day before Watson and Crick figured That's out the structure of DNA. And this means that she had written them before she knew about their work. And so her discovery is not based on their stuff. Yeah. And then on March 8th, which is the day after Crick and Watson had finished their model, uh, Wilkins sent a letter to Watson and Crick saying, I think you'll be interested to know that our dark lady leaves us next week. Our dark lady. Our dark lady. What the hell? At last the decks are clear and we can put all hands to the pumps. Which sounds a little masturbatory. The decks are clear. And we can put all our hands to the pumps. Oh, we've been needing to masturbate this whole time, but we couldn't do so with the woman in the lab. (laughs) Oh, that's That's... why that's why there was so much friction. Yeah, pent up (laughs) No, pent up um sexual yeah. uh, tension like that. Yeah. And not tension. What's the word? Like, um, repressed yeah. sexual urges. <laughs> okay. Um, so We're getting too Freudian. <laughs> yeah. Upon the completion of their model, Crick and Watson invited Wilkins to be co-author on the paper. Right. Which Wilkins declined. Um, but they did not offer that to Franklin, who had actually done the... All the work. All the work yeah. that they had used for their model. 
So then on April 25th, 1953, so the same year, uh, Crick and Watson's model was published in Nature, describing the double helical structure of DNA. I wonder why Wilkins declined. Why would you decline that? Uh, I don't think he thought he had done enough of the research for... I don't know. I mean, know. if someone's offering you... <laughs> if someone's offering you a Like, paper, they you... think you've done the work, obviously, you know. That's yeah. just odd to me, I guess. Yeah. Anyway. I don't know. But so, they had published the structure of DNA, and kind of in summary, if you don't know what DNA looks like, Emma, I know you don't know what DNA looks like, so let me tell you. Uh, in summary, their model found that the structure of DNA was a double helix with two sugar phosphate backbones. Yeah. Sounds kind of tasty. Um, <laughs> most importantly, they discovered that adenine and thymine and guanine and cytosine paired up between the right. two backbones. In this way, the two strands of DNA essentially make mirror images of one another so that you can easily replicate yeah. by splitting up the two ends and then you can you have all the information to yeah. make two uh, strands of DNA. So in this paper, they only included a footnote saying that their work had been stimulated by the general knowledge of Franklin and Wilkins' what? unpublished contribution. General knowledge. A deal was then struck between the directors of the two laboratories, the Kings and Cambridge, mm -hmm. so that Wilkin and Franklin's papers on the X-ray diffraction data were published in the same nature oh, uh, okay. paper yeah. uh, as support for Watson and Crick's model. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so was that her two A papers? One was Wilkins's paper on whatever he was doing. Okay. Because he was working on the B. Okay. Um, and then the third paper was hers. Was one of those two A papers she submitted? I, no, because they sure. were published separately. Oh, oh, oh. So Franklin had a cautious approach to science, and she retained a skepticism. Which of, is good. Yeah, of Watson yeah. and Crick's model, believing that they should have far greater evidence before publishing this model as proven. Yeah. But it was such a race right. that, like, once they figured out, okay, here's the facts we have, and here's one way we can get it to work, uh -huh. where all of the evidence uh, supports it, it's then we're like, going to... It's a really weird paper. It's only, like, a page long, and they didn't do anything. No, they don't, they don't they have any data. They just put together all these pieces. Yeah, they don't it's have really any weird. data to yeah. back up. Because they don't directly... Well, they didn't create any of the data yeah. used in the paper. But they don't, don't cite think. most of... Like, a lot of yeah. it's based on Franklin's diffraction stuff, but they don't cite that. Yeah. They just are like, we've put the pieces together. We don't have evidence we that this is the way it is. Yeah, right. We, we just, just hear the things we know, like and this, this yeah, is... really yeah. crazy. <sighs> so, yeah, so she thought they should have far greater evidence before publishing this model yeah. as a proven model, because uh -huh. it's just kind of what they did. And she said, upon seeing the model on April 10th, it's very pretty, but how are you going to prove it? <laughs> uh, it's very pretty. <laughs> it's very pretty. It is very pretty. <sighs> so throughout the double helix book that Watson wrote, uh, which was his famous 1968 book recounting the race to determine the structure yeah. of DNA, he refers to Franklin as Rosie, a nickname yeah. that was never used to her face. 
And there, and he, he says, quote, There was never lipstick to contrast with her straight black hair, while at the age of 31, her dresses showed all of the imagination of English blue stocking adolescence. What does that mean? <laughs> like, she looks like a gir- little girl. Oh, uh, uh, uh. I think. He writes, Watson wow. says that Rosalind's belligerent moods interfered Ugh. with Wilkins' ability to, quote, maintain a dominant position that would allow him to think unhindered about DNA. Ugh. Because of this, quote, clearly Rosie had to go or be put in her place. The thought could not be avoided that the best home for a feminist was in another person's lab. I can't believe it's taken, like, 50 years to finally get him fired from, like, all of academia. <laughs> he's such an asshole. Yeah, he's... <laughs> He pretty much sucks. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's a quote from Watson's book. What a gem. Oh, in the 1993 book Nobel Prize Women in Science, Crick says, I'm afraid we always used to adopt, let's say, a patronizing attitude towards her. So I Yeah. Th- yeah. Clearly. <laughs> um, I'm afraid, like, you did. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, he seems a little more regretful than Watson. Right. Like, I mean, he, he's, well, w- he's dead, but yeah. he did. Um, I mean, Watson called him an idiot yeah. all the time. <laughs> Watson too, just I'm thought he was sure. like a one man show. Yeah. Uh, and all of the rest of humanity are idiots. Yeah. It's also in the Double Helix book where Watson refers to having seen uh, right. of Wilkins having shown him. Rosalind Franklin's yeah. actual, like, X-ray. photo, x-ray yeah. photo. And so it was based on his book that people then went back and realized how much Franklin had done. Yeah. And doesn't he, he say in the book, he's like, she's so stupid not to see this and immediately realize what we realize. And it's just like, she kind of did. You Obviously, she published these papers mm-hmm. before you did. Yeah. Like a day she just wasn't going to put it all together and say definitively yeah. that it was this without... She was knowledge. just doing science well instead of looking <laughs> for all the glory, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Ugh, so frustrating. <sighs> okay. But she'll, she'll be remembered yeah. forever. Oh, for sure. She's well known. Yeah. So at this time, now Franklin was in Birkbeck College at the University of London. And the if infrastructure there was worse than her previous position, but she said it was pleasanter all the same. She was recruited by John Desmond Bernal, who was a crystallographer who was a communist and known for promoting women crystallographers like... Rosalind Franklin? (laughs) Oh, Marie Curie? No. Oh, 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 Dorothy Hodgkin? Yeah! Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. The the paths crossed. Yeah, Marie Curie wasn't a crystallographer. Sorry. You're all good. She's an x-rayer, right? We haven't talked about her yet. You, you can't ask me anything about Marie okay. Curie. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like famous she died of cancer because mm. of all the x-rays, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> one day. One day we'll get One day we'll, day get, we'll get her. That one's really... That'll be like a really special app uh-huh. somehow. Uh-huh. Maybe we'll do like mother-daughter apps. Like we'll split... Cause I oh, okay. I, I was like, is also... there going to be a whole series <laughs> of other mother daughter? Um, uh, Marie Curie's first Nobel Prize. Oh, one yeah, episode. Yeah. That might be good. Nobel, Nobel Prize, another episode. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. So now she's no longer at King's, but she continued to help Gosling finish his PhD. Wow. And in July, they published the first evidence of the double helix structure of the A form of DNA uh, in nature. 
And Bernal, who she was working with, helped Franklin secure funding from the Agricultural Research Center, enabling her to work as a senior scientist supervising her own research group. So she was in charge of her own research group there. And she, while there, she explored RNA. Oh, cool. And she used x-ray crystallography to study the structure of the tobacco mosaic virus. Oh, nice. Which is an RNA virus in collaboration with Aaron Klug. Klug? I don't know. Klug sounds better than Klug. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to go with Klug. It's European, you know. Yeah. A col- <laughs> a- but also British, so I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, and he was a colleague who she had met as a student in Cambridge okay. and happened to come back and work with. And in 1955, Franklin published her first major work on this virus in Nature, uh, correctly asserting that these virus particles were all the same length, contrary to the ideas at the time. And she continued to study RNA viruses affecting various agricultural crops, mm. like a bunch of agricultural yeah. crops, with her grad student, Kenneth Holmes, uh, also Aaron Klug, and then his student, John Finch. Mm. And in 1955, that same year, an American postdoctoral student, Donald Casper, joined the lab. And Franklin and Casper <laughs> published two complementary papers on the structure of RNA cool. uh, in nature. So she was doing a lot of work on RNA at the time. Yeah. And then Casper returned to America. And so the following year, Franklin visited the University of California, Berkeley, and then visited Casper in his home in Colorado. <gasps> she remarked later about Casper that he was one she might have loved, might have married. What? I know. Might have. Just uh, it was during her trip to America that she suspected health problems. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. Oh, man. I knew she died pretty young. Yeah. Her stomach had started to bulge, and doctors oh. had asked her if she was pregnant, and she was like, I, w- or, I don't remember what she said. She was like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and then doctors revealed two tumors in her abdomen. Oh, my God. Yeah. Doesn't It doesn't get better from here. Before we knew X-rays, I think they did. Oh, they, they had did know. Learned, they but had they, didn't. Sh- they had those like metal or like lead vests. Yeah, right. And she just never wore them. <gasps> what? And she would work like all night and with the X-rays on because she you couldn't like fiddle with the camera unless the X-ray thing was on. Oh my she never gosh. wore. That sucks. Yeah. So, in 1957, her grant expired, and she subsequently received a grant from NIH Mm. for 10,000 pounds. I didn't know NIH gave grants to... To the Brits. To the Brits. Give me some money. Maybe it was a collab. Could have been. But it was the largest fund ever received at Birkbeck College. So, 10,000 pounds in 1957. Probably a lot of money. Yeah. And on the suggestion of colleagues at UC Berkeley, while she was there, Franklin began deciphering the structure of the polio virus. Oh, okay. You know? (laughs) Cool. And as she was conducting this work, Franklin's health began to rapidly deteriorate. Um, Yet, in that year, she still published six papers, so. Oh, my God. (laughs) Still very productive. You know, that's all that matters. Wow. Um. After a brief hospitalization at the end of 1957, she returned to work in January and was promoted. Uh, I mean, she must have been not doing too bad yeah, at I that mean, point, I guess. They might not have realized how bad she was doing. Yeah. Then the first major world war after 
the first major world fair after oh, World oh, War II. I was II. like, there was another one? <laughs> no. Wait, how did I miss world that? There's III? a third It's the first I've heard of it. Um, so Expo 58 was to be held in Brussels in 1958, and it was mm. going to be the next World's Fair. And they invited Franklin to make a five-foot-high model of the tomato mosaic virus. Whoa. And Wait, tomato or tobacco? Tobacco, sorry. Okay, yeah. I, it, I wrote it as TMV and then I couldn't oh, remember yeah, what yeah. that stood for. I think it's tobacco. Yeah. Yeah. And so she got real creative. She used tennis balls and plastic bicycle handlebar fun. grips and <laughs> made this People uh, diorama. Sigs back then, yeah. I guess. <laughs> However, on April 16th, 1958, Rosalind Franklin died of bronchopneumonia, secondary carcinomatosis, and ovarian cancer. What? It's a whole... How do you die of all... Th- I guess those things... I think carcinomatosis and ovarian cancer are related, and then... Like, she got pneumonia, pneumonia probably. she was so sick, yeah. probably. Yeah. yeah. And the, the exhibit of her virus model and the Brussels World Fair opened uh, the day after Franklin died. Oh. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, and wow, what a weird, I know. like, last thing to do <laughs> i know make this like weird bicycle yeah sounds fun though yeah, yeah. a little creative but it remains unclear if her research and the extensive use of x-rays was what caused the cancer oh okay uh it could be that it's also known that ashkenazi jews oh, uh, are yeah. have much higher rates of cancer certain i think cancers. a certain cancer um but i didn't know that yeah, yeah. could be a combination of factors after her death, in 1962, four years after her death, the Nobel Prize was subsequently awarded to Crick, Watson, and Wilkins. Yeah. Before they received the Nobel Prize, Jack Monod, who was a French biochemist, mm. who I think was partially oh, in charge yeah. of like I've helping heard that figure name out. Before. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote to Crick and said, Well, there's talk from Bragg, maybe we shouldn't give Wilkins the Nobel Prize. Does he deserve it? And Crick says he definitely deserves it. He did very, very important work getting the structure initially, doing preliminary work, and at the end doing brilliant work confirming it. But the actual data he used was of Rosalind Franklin, period. Yeah. But uh, Nobel rules prohibit posthumous nominations, but they also prohibit splitting a prize more than three ways. Oh, I didn't know that. So even if she was alive, there was four of them. There's also, like, Ryan Gosling. Not Ryan Gosling. Whatever Gosling. (laughs) Ryan Gosling. (laughs) Deserves that Nobel Prize. We think this young man will be born. Wait, what year was this? Uh, 1962. Yeah, they're like, we think in 20 years this young handsome man will be born. (laughs) And we shall... He's so handsome, he should get Shall we give him the prize? (laughs) (laughs) But... Even if she was alive, the fact that they couldn't split it up four ways, mm, I, I don't know. I they would have given it to her, Wilkins. Then. Yeah, I don't think... <laughs> I doubt they would have given it to her over Wilkins. Really? Wow. But they were, like, friends with Wilkins and yeah. a bunch of other... Like, they had offered him to be on the paper, but not her to be on the paper, so... <sighs> That's so weird. But I guess it's not It's not Watson and Crick's... Like, it's not their decision. Their decision, yeah. so... Who knows? Yeah. But the award was given for the body of work on nucleic acids and wasn't exclusively for the discovery of the structure of DNA. So it was Mm. kind of a whole summation of Mm. work on DNA and nucleic acids. 
And at that time, Wilkins had worked on the structure of DNA for more than 10 years. Yeah. Um, and he'd done much to confirm the Watson-Crick model after. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah, that makes sense. you know, it could have been, even if she was alive. Yeah, she switched knows. fields. And yeah, then, she switched yeah. fields, which is... She switched fields because it wasn't a very... Because they were all treating her like Because they were shit. treating her like shit. And they were like, you and can't she, bring your work Yeah, you can't you. keep working on DNA, so... Ugh. So Aaron Klug, Klug, Klug? Yeah. That guy, who she worked on, who worked with her on the RNA... Okay. ...when she had moved to Birkbeck, after all yeah. of the Watson Crick stuff. He was also the primary beneficiary in her will. I don't know why. Huh. Maybe they had something. Yeah, I couldn't find anything about that but that's kind of bizarre maybe they were just maybe they're just friends friends. and he like took care of her while she was sick or something but he was the sole winner of a nobel prize in chemistry in 1982 wow for his development of crystal crystallographic electron microscopy and his structural (laughs) elucidation his structural elucidation of biologically important nucleic acid protein complexes this was work that Franklin had started Ugh. and which she had introduced to Klug. Well. And if she was alive, it's highly plausible that she would have shared yeah. that Nobel Prize with him. Wow. So she was brilliant. And she just skirted the edge of yeah. a bunch of Nobel Prizes. And that's that's the story of Rosalind Franklin. Man. Yeah, it's weird. I wonder what, I mean, or maybe even if she had stayed alive, she would have done that work instead of Mm -hmm. him or done something else incredible yeah who knows yeah she was like a master of coal (laughs) like she was well known in coal circles and then went to dna and then became well known almost got a nobel prize for that and then went on to viruses and helped this other guy get a nobel prize so she so cool i didn't know about all that yeah that happened later yeah she kept she kept doing research and like Almost getting Nobel prizes, <laughs> just constantly. I don't. I guess I understand why they don't give the prize posthumously. Yeah. Like, but you you would think they could just be like, yeah, they an honorary get a Nobel prize. Yeah. But obviously, we're not going to give their family the yeah. money or something. Or, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So just say someone has it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that seems like a but- silly rule. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so that's Oh, that's cool. I'm glad I got to hear more about her. Yeah, I, I was there was I didn't realize that the DNA was just a short kind of stint in her career. Yeah. Um, yeah, I always, and she did a bunch of other stuff. I always had the impression that she was an assistant in Wilkins lab who found this thing because he told her to. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of her whole career. Yeah. I had no idea this was really, like, her... He was her assistant. Yeah. He just yeah, didn't know bitch. it. <laughs> well, because nobody like, told him. Listening to Stemphatol, like, hey. hey. <laughs> if he's still alive, yeah. which is unlikely. <laughs> I do feel, like, I think, from what I was reading, he, on multiple occasions, did try to... Give her more credit or something? No, he... Tr- well, he tried to befriend her... Oh, oh. And, like, he tried to bring her... He, like, just couldn't figure out how to befriend her. And I think she... Yeah. I mean, she was... Some people She was opinionated and, you know, liked who she liked and didn't like who she didn't like. And I think there was just a bit of a clash. Yeah. Um, And then there was also a shitty atmosphere. Yeah. So... I mean, just because he tried to 
befriend her doesn't mean that he wasn't he was also, nice. Yeah, like, it wasn't also that he was potentially sexist and yeah. not treating her with respect. Right, yeah. It's like, he you can bring me just... chocolates, but if you also still don't respect me as a scientist, I'm not going to be your friend. Yeah. <laughs> like, if he's like, hey, little missy, want to be friends. <laughs> hey, Rosie. <laughs> Fuck you. I just feel like, Jesus, go yeah. away. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was gonna say she also really liked to climb, but then oh, I didn't know how to put like that in. Rock climb? Yeah, she did a lot of just like you know eighteen-hour cool. hiking and Whoa. went on a lot of. Whenever she w- took vacations, they were all like to do insane like Alps climbing, like wow. ice pick climbing what up mountains. Man. I didn't even know people did that back yeah. then. So I guess you had like people knew how, but yeah. I didn't know people did that recreationally. You shouldn't. <laughs> my opinion, but that's just me. Yeah, it seems like I'm a afraid lot to of go work. on those like lime scooters. So, don't. oh yeah, did I tell you I rode one for a block and got terrified? <laughs> <laughs> like, well, that's my dollars worth. I can't do it. it. I just know I'm gonna hurt myself. Yeah, I was just like, oh, my skull feels so vulnerable. <laughs> I, <laughs> I know. was riding it and I had to get off. Work, 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 work. This. Is our women who work section. Quack, 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 quack. Where we give shout outs to badass women making history and science today. True. Okay. This week, my shout out goes to Dr. Melissa Graham, who's an astronomer at the University of Washington. Uh, so, Melissa Graham led a team of researchers recently. In discovering more about the cause of supernovas in oh, stars. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So a little background. Yeah, and I don't I, know what I half of that was. I had to look this up on NASA's for students grades five through eight. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best resource for nice. me Excellent. to break this down. So, um, you know, okay. So the life of a star yes. can take a few different paths. Take me away. <laughs> But, you know, all stars begin as these giant flaming balls of gas. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, that emit light through fusion of hydrogen into helium. Mm-hmm. Cecilia Payne. She yes. didn't figure that out, but she figured out the helium thing, hydrogen thing. Eventually, when stars die, in quotations, which is actually just they run out of hydrogen and kind of collapse into themselves. Mm-hmm. There's sort of two things that can happen. So, and this is very, like, basic what can happen, I guess. I'm sure it's much more variable than I'm explaining it. So they can become a white dwarf, which is a carbon-oxygen-rich dead star, basically, where all of their matter just kind of collapses into itself, and they become this really dense... uh, really hot thing the size of the earth where they just stay that way for billions of years. Okay. Or if they're a lot bigger, they like if they're a red giant, which is a very massive star, when they collapse back into themselves, it will cause a huge explosion called called a supernova. Okay. So it's just like uh stars that have a lot of mass or matter, sorry physicists I don't know how to use those words correctly. When they collapse into themselves, they're going to cause this big explosion because there's just too much 
for them to be contained gotcha. in the way a white dwarf is, I okay. guess. Yeah. White dwarf is such a weird I know, yeah. term. <laughs> um, yeah, so a supernova is just like an, an old star exploding and spewing its stuff <laughs> all over the galaxy. All right. And, okay. Makes me think of Supernova Girl. Um, the Xeon. Oh, Xenon. Xenon. Wait, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the Disney Channel. Supernova, Supernova Girl. Oh, so good. Continue. Tell me about science. Okay. So, so right. So supernovas can happen this way where a star is dying or there's another cause of supernovas, which is when two stars are orbiting the same point and one of them is a white dwarf and the white dwarf starts or stealing matter from the other star in this binary system. Okay. So it's like kind of a dead star, but Uh for physical reasons, it's stealing matter from the other star. And then it kind of becomes this two massive thing that will explode. Gotcha. So there's two ways this supernova can happen. It's like, it's already very massive Mm -hmm. and then it explodes. Or it's a thief. It becomes small. Yeah. Thief dwarf. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Physics. Yeah, there's <laughs> astrophysics. There's is so hard. The seven dwarfs. They're sleepy. White. White, <laughs> <laughs> white dwarf. <laughs> white thief. It's like white thief dwarf. Yeah, that's the one we're talking about. Okay. <laughs> white dwarf. White dwarf. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. uh, so until now, scientists have known. So, yeah, so this white dwarf is circulating a point with another star, right? Mm -hmm. And it's known as kind of the companion star. Okay. And until now, scientists have known a lot about the white dwarf and that it's stealing the matter and that causes a supernova. Okay. But they weren't sure what the companion star, but they didn't know what kind of star the companion star is. Mm -hmm. Because stars can be big, they can be small, they can be this color, that color. You know, sure. Yeah, (laughs) that's what I'm guessing. So most evidence until now really has pointed to these companion stars being small and tidy. (laughs) So like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, like all the matter is kind of in this one area and it's not very spread out, I guess. Yeah, okay. But rare observations of these binary supernovas have seen that the companion stars are sometimes messy red giants spewing hydrogen debris everywhere. The other dwarf. Yeah. <laughs> well, giants. No, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the non-dwarf, The non-dwarf. So it's important to determine what that companion star actually looks like mm-hmm. because these types of supernovas have been used to study dark energy and the expansion rate of the universe. Somehow I didn't look that up. Don't don't even. But somehow, Uh and, you know, so calculations based on these supernovas are probably going to be different if the companion star is, like, one thing or another. A tidy little one or a big messy big one. A messy big one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, Melissa Graham... 
our shout out this week. Woo-woo. She led a big team of researchers to learn more about these companion stars. And she had witnessed using the Hubble Space Telescope the aftermath of a supernova, which that's like all this debris is being scattered. And so the debris being scattered by the white dwarf that just exploded is hitting <laughs> anything nearby, right? <sighs> and what so what they saw was basically that debris was hitting a bunch of other debris and letting off UV light nearby the explosion area. Okay. And what that means is that the other star is messy. Because the other star is spewing hydrogen all over the place for the white dwarf debris to hit. And for some reason, when those impact each other, it causes a UV light to be emitted where we can even see it with the telescope. So they witnessed this UV light, essentially, and they were like, okay, that means that this companion star is a messy red giant. (laughs) Just just (laughs) such a funny, like, you messy bitch. Like... (laughs) Um, spewing all that UV. So then she was like, let's team up with a bunch of other people and researchers and telescopes and whatever. And they measured, they basically studied 70 known supernova of this type in the galaxy or galaxies, probably just our galaxy. I was about to say in in the world, (laughs) like as if that was the big... (laughs) Uh, they studied uh, yeah. 70 other supernova of this binary system type and eventually found that messy red giants were involved in about 6% of binary system supernovas. Oh, so, it's so a, a lot, pretty, mostly. Most of them. A lot of them. 6%? I have very few of them. <laughs> More than they thought. Okay. But it's still not the majority. No, very much not so. Um, and... She said that them, like, witnessing this thing with the Hubble Space Telescope was really random. Mm -hmm. And if they had looked, you know, a month later, they wouldn't have seen the same thing. Yeah. So now they've set up telescopes to automatically record this kind of UV light data. So they can just get a ton uh, more measurements of supernovas. Awesome. And learn more about that. So anyway, yeah, that's a shout out. Sometimes you just gotta stare through a telescope and you're gonna... Learn a bunch of new things about yeah, big, I messy st- giants and tiny, white, stealth dro- dwarfs. Yeah, I started this and I was like, okay, I kind of, I know supernova exploding star. And then uh-huh. I was like, do I need to define a star? And then I looked into the life cycle of a star and I was like, okay, there's more than one way this can go. <laughs> it's like getting so much more complicated, but... That's my, like, simple explanation of a... I I followed it. You've done a great job. Thanks. (laughs) Well, that's because we know the amount of physics of a fifth to eighth grader. (laughs) Excellent. Well, yeah. I'm pretty proud about that. I'm okay with that. (laughs) You do. Okay. Okay. That's it. We did it. Yeah. This one's a a little bit of a longer episode, but... That's all right. Rosalind Franklin's a gem. She is a gem. She had to be... She had to be told correctly. Yeah. Um, so thank you, everybody, for tuning in. If Woo. you liked this episode, please share it, yeah. rate, review, subscribe. Hell we yeah. very much appreciate if you write us a review. It yeah. helps us a lot. Also want to thank Caitlin Friesen for her art. 
that you can still buy as mugs and stickers yeah, and all the money. so cool. Uh, up until the end of January is going to go to Women Who Code. So yeah. if you want to buy something, buy it now. Yeah. It'll still be up. Or buy it later. If but you want. Yeah. If you hate Women Who Code, then buy it later for <laughs> yeah. sure. If you hate, maybe don't listen to this <laughs> Yeah, podcast. also, know, what, what are you doing you. here? Uh, and then thank you to Artichoke for our theme song, Mary Annie. Yeah. And you can go, go stimulate yourself. yourself. Bye. Bye. <laughs> By circa 1820, she ran a fossil store. She put the bones together for